reading is from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. On my Pew Bible, it's on page 1180. Hopefully it's in yours as well. If not, look at the person next to you and see if you can find it. Uh, Or it's on the screen in front of you. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, through faith in his blood. This is to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Amen. Thank you, Jesse. <clears throat> Jesse was a uh, first-year university student when I first moved to Geelong and started ministering at uh, Deakin University. Um, he was a young pup at the time. Now he's turned into a hairy, big, hairy dog. So I don't know what happened. Well, let's uh, ask God to um, bless this time together. <clears throat> our Father and our God, we thank and praise you for causing your word to be written and for causing it to be preserved these 2,000 years and more. Please, Father God, would you cause our minds to understand your word this morning, but most of all, cause our hearts to rejoice in the good news that it contains. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't know if you've ever stood before someone... (coughs) feeling completely and totally guilty. When I was a 10-year-old kid, I was visiting a friend and we were asked to go and collect the eggs. So we dutifully collected the eggs, but like any 10-year-old kid, uh, there's things that you can do with eggs that's a lot of fun. And so we started seeing how far we could throw them to each other to catch them. And then we thought, yeah, that's got pretty boring, so we started to throw them at each other. And that was more fun. And then we walked into the kitchen and delivered the three remaining eggs. And uh, as I gave my offering to my friend's mum, she looked down at me, sorry, looked down at me and said, is that all the eggs? And I can distinctly remember saying, yes, knowing full well that I was lying. And not only that, but as I said, yes, I could see in her eyes that she knew that I was lying. She knew that I was guilty. 
Now, that's a trivial little standing before someone. But one day, we will all stand before the Almighty God to give an account for our life, our whole life. And the crime is much greater than busting half a dozen eggs. We have been guilty of rebelling against our maker, sinning against the mighty God who made us in his image, the God who gave us dignity and worth as people, the God who gave us, shared with us his own image. But what we have done is we have refused to acknowledge him. Not only have we refused to acknowledge him, but we've actually told the creator of the universe, you have got no right over me. You've got no right to tell me how to live my life. That's what we've done to God. And we've got to uh, remember that vertical aspect. It makes it terribly serious. If you were listening to the reading from Psalm 143, you, one phrase I'd like to draw your attention to again, no one living is righteous before you, O God. So let's not kind of horizon, horizontalise, I'm making up a word, let's not horizontalise sin and trivialise it, just saying, oh, well, you know, God's on the same plane as me. No, 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 God's on the vertical plane. Let's never forget that. But despite this greatness of God and and the lowness of us, and despite our great sin, God is a gracious and kind God. And you know what? He wants to heal that relationship. He wants to offer forgiveness for our rebellion. And so he gives us an invitation. The invitation is actually first hidden in, in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. There's a little invitation there that says, Come now, let us reason together. God and man reasoning together. Though your sin is like scarlet, it will be as white as snow. Though it is as red as crimson, it will be like wool. What's the difference in the colour there? Red? Red is the colour of guilt. Though you are as guilty as all hell, I can make you like snow, like wool, white, forgiven, cleansed. It's a massive picture. Verse 25 goes on to say, I will purge away dross, I will remove impurities from us. And so that kind of reasoning with God or reasoning of God helps us see that God really does desire this relationship to be healed. He desires to deal with sin. In other words, we don't have to stand before God on the last day guilty. We can be forgiven, we can be cleansed, we can be justified. Oh, what a joy it would be. A joy it would be to stand before God justified. Now, um, we heard a a parable of the kingdom just earlier. Uh, One of the parables that I remember is Jesus tells this parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field. This morning, we are going to gaze into some of that treasure. We're going to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. There are precious jewels in this passage that will enable us to stand before God on the last day without fear. There is treasure in this passage that that can save us from our sin. There is treasure in this passage that, that transports us into heaven on the last day.
And I hope uh, by the end of, of my talk this morning from the Bible, it will light up your face with joy unspeakable because you can be justified before God. Let me give you a little quick overview of the passage. It starts off with but now. Now the but now singles, signals a change. There's been a flow of argument coming along in Romans. We're all under sin. We're all silent before God can't say a word in defence. And we're all condemned. That's the conclusion that's been working through halfway through chapter 1, all the way through chapter 2, halfway through chapter 3. In fact, that's the little conclusion in chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. Just a two-word sentence of the conclusion. We are all desperately in need of the gospel that, might, that, that will be able to justify us. We're in desperate need of that. So when it says, but now, we are getting to this divine initiative, the action that God takes to save humanity. Here's the solution to our dilemma. God graciously provides justification for us. And if you actually just have a look at some of the things that happen in that passage, there's God's action dominates everything. God reveals his righteousness. God makes it available through faith in Jesus. God justifies the sinner. God provides redemption in Jesus. God presented Jesus as a propitiation for sin. God um, demonstrates that he's just, punishing sin, and God demonstrates also that he's the justifier of sinners. God, God, God. I mean, holy smokes, he's busy. He's doing all that in just a few verses. And he's doing that despite the fact that we are people who all fall short of the glory of God. He's doing that to dirt, for, for dirty, rotten sinners. How far short do we fall of God's glory? Well, just imagine you, you go outside, right, and you want to... You want to uh, shoot an arrow up to the sun. Off you go, you shoot it up. You might get 20 metres, you might get 100 metres. Whoopee-doo, you're still a long way short of the sun. That's how far we short, fall short of the sun. Chris, he might go and shoot an arrow. And you know, Back in the day in Sri Lanka, he was on the national archery team. And he's going to be able to shoot that arrow two or 300 metres, twice, two or three times further than you. Maybe 300 metres up in the air. But you know what? You look back and you still see the sun a long way off. We are all that far short of God's glory. You, you, you can't believe it. All of us. So in the gospel of God, despite the fact that we fall short, we can be justified freely by his grace. And that gives us the best reason and all the reason in the world to rejoice in this good news. It is great news signalling a big, big change. Now, I do um, university ministry. You've heard that. I've been doing it for 12 years in Geelong. And um, uh, in university ministry, you get university students who, you know, you're at that stage of life where they propose to a girl. Uh, and just to help you illustrate the magnitude of the change here in the but now, let me illustrate it from these university students who propose. You know, how do they announce their engagement? They don't, they don't announce it with words, actually. They announce it with a ring, with a jewel, with a diamond ring. <clears throat> Some are very slow to um, do this and they need a little bit of a kick along by me or, you know, by, well, by me, I'm 
willingly doing it all the time. I actually got an SMS on Friday night, would you believe, from one university student who's just celebrated their seventh year of married life. And actually in the text he says, thank you for telling me to get a move along. Some students are very, very fast at putting the ring on the finger. And I'll let Jesse tell you who some of those are uh, over morning tea this morning. But, you know, before a friend is uh, going out, they're, ju they're just... Sorry, before the engagement, they're just going out. They're just, they're just dating, right? Um, but now, when they get engaged and when they've got that jewel of the diamond ring, there is a massive change in the relationship. It puts a big smile on the girl's face. She knows she is loved. She knows she's been chosen. She knows her future is going to be married to this guy and filled with joy and happiness. <laughs> a little bit deluded there, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but likewise, in Romans chapter 3, there is a massive step forward in God's plan to unite his son with his people. There is a massive step forward to demonstrate the love that God has got for the human race. And let me tell you, it is not Mr. Tall, Dark and Handsome proposing to marry Miss Universe. It is not like that at all. It is more like Jose, the godly, faithful prophet. Proposing to marry Goma, the prostitute. That's what it's like. Can you imagine that? A holy, godly, faithful prophet grabbing hold of the precious diamond ring and proposing to a prostitute. Can you imagine that? It's, it's hard. But you know what? What God does in Romans chapter 3 is just that. His action is to love the unlovely, love the undeserved, love the unworthy. And that is part of the precious jewel that I want to concentrate on this morning. I'm just looking really at chapter 3, verse 28. Let me quote it in full. But we conclude that a man is justified by faith, or justified through faith, apart from works. That's the jewel of the gospel. That's the diamond ring. Now, um, many good things come in threes. I've got three sons, Ben, Jake and Dan. Great young men. Cricket is a great sport and a cricket wicket has got three stumps. God comes to us in three persons. The logo of New Life Presbyterian Church has got three leaves on it. Lots of good things come to you in... Threes, and so today's sermon comes to you in three points. But I want to stick to, uh, I don't want to deviate from the passage, so the three points are simply going to be justified, by faith, apart from works. Let's start off with the first one, justified. Justified is a word that is borrowed from the law courts. 
It's a verb, it's a doing word, it's an action word, and I'm an English teacher. No, I'm not, I'm just joking. But it talks about God's work. So you ask the question, what is God doing? What's the work that God is doing here? Well, he's judge, and what he's doing is he's handing down his sentence. He's handing down his ruling or his verdict. And the verdict is this. He's declaring a person justified. That is, he's not saying, oh, you're innocent of sin. But what he's saying is, you are right with me, the judge. He's acquitting people of their guilt. So justified is God's favourable verdict on the accused guilty sinner. He is declaring a person to be righteous in his sight or righteous before him. Now the meaning or significance of that word can actually be helped if we consider the opposite. What is the opposite thing that God can and perhaps should say, really should say to a guilty sinner? Well, God, the sentence that God should hand down is the word condemned. That, that word conveys that, that this person is unacceptable to God, rejected by God. And the reaction of someone who is unacceptable and rejected by God would, would be things like weeping and great heartache and emotional turmoil as we're, as we're cast out of God's presence. That, that's the opposite. How is it possible then that that God can declare a guilty sinner to be right with him, with him. How indeed. And that's where I've got to go back to verses 24 to 25 and unpack it out for you a little bit more because in verses 24 and 25 there are more jewels in there. It's like opening up a jewellery box. Or what, are they called? what do the girls call them? The treasure box? I don't know what they're called, but anyway, that, that thing. There are three gems in particular that I want to point out just quickly. Justified, freely by grace, that's one of the gems. It indicates that this is a, a, a gift from God. It's offered through sheer mercy and graciousness and goodness of God the giver. And a, one thing we have to appreciate, we have to appreciate that the gospel is God's initiative and his kindness. That in itself should be a cause of great rejoicing. The second gem in this little... Uh, passage here, verses 24 to 25, is the phrase, through redemption that is in Jesus. Now, redemption is the process that God rescues us. It's, it's God's plan to rescue us. And it's got um, background in the Old Testament that's important to see. You remember the story of the Exodus, where Israel was in physical slavery to sin? What did God do? God rescued them. He redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. And remember he parted the waters and they darted through and um, they sat on the banks on the other side and the, the army darted through and then God dumped all the water down on them and they all drowned. And then what happened after that? Israel, the whole nation, danced for joy on the banks of the other side. Exodus chapter, uh, chapter 15. And that, that song of rejoicing, that song of Moses and Miriam rejoicing is, is the pivot that the whole of the book of Exodus swings on. A song of rejoicing. They were enslaved in Egypt. They travelled to the Reed Sea. They were redeemed through that. They sat on the banks and they rejoiced because after that they were encamped at Mount Sinai. That's the rest of Exodus. 
It is the pivot of the whole book. It's a song of rejoicing because they've been redeemed. How do you react when you're redeemed? You dance for joy. But redemption requires a ransom, a price to be paid for the ransom. And the price is the life of the Lamb. Jesus presents, Je- sorry, God presents Jesus as a, here's a technical word, here's the third gem in this passage, as a propitiation for sin. A sacrifice for sin, we could say, but I'll talk more, I'll explain it more in a moment. But yes, it's a technical word and it comes from the Old Testament background as well and it's all built into the sacrificial system but it all pointed forward to the day when God would present Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. It was actually instituted just before they darted through the Red Sea. It was instituted in the preparation for that last plague, the Passover. And the Israelites had to sacrifice a Passover lamb, sprinkle the door frames of their houses with the blood of the lamb. And they were told to make that a perpetual memory for 1,500 years, remembering this, pointing forward to the day in the New Testament when Jesus would be our Passover lamb. And if our hearts are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb, the destructive angel of God will pass over us and spare us. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. For Jesus, it was God's plan, but for Jesus' part, he was fully entrusting himself to God's plan and so willingly went to the cross. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John The Baptist said in John 1 verse 19. Here is the beloved son of God sacrificed as the Lord would provide a son. Remember Abraham had to sacrifice his son. Goes off to Mount Moriah. You know where Mount Moriah is? That's where it happened. Mount Moriah is on the hills of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was built on those hills. 1,500 years before. Uh, before Jesus was sacrificed in Jerusalem, God was planning for that event. Abraham, at the last minute, was prevented from sacrificing his son because, because God said, hey, don't do it. There's a lamb, there's a ram over there, sacrifice it. And, and Abraham called that place, after that time, he called that place, the Lord will provide. 1,500 years later, The Lord did provide. And you know who the Lord provided? The Lord provided his one and only beloved son as a sacrifice for sin. Do you see what I mean by there's gems in this passage? But think about this. By setting forth Jesus on the cross, God is just because he punishes sin and he provides a means for sin to be dealt with. Sin is dealt with on the cross. So he, just, he, um, he is just, God is just. But more than that and more exciting than that, God justifies the sinner. He grants mercy to the sinner. It is extraordinary. It is really extraordinary. I was at a preaching conference um, 
couple of weeks ago that Chris was at as well. And uh, Brian Chapel, the preacher, told a story of <clears throat> when he went in with his son into a county courtroom to argue the case about some fine that obviously his son was, um, <clears throat> was guilty of. And uh, before him, the lady before him was <clears throat> arguing her case before the judge. And the judge said, were you speeding? And the lady said, yes, I was. I was speeding. I, I was in a hurry, and as you do. And uh, she said, well, he said, well you've, got to pay, you've got to pay the fine. And, and she said, look, I've got no money. And he, she kept pleading, I've got no money. I've got, I, you know, I've got five kids. I've got, I cannot pay this fine. And he said, well, you've got to pay the fine or I'm going to take your licence from you. That's, that's the law. And she kept arguing back and back and he kept prizing her with questions after question. You know, why can't you pay the money and why are you, are you dependent? He said, I, I need my car for my family. I will not be able to feed my children if, if you take my licence away from her. And he was a just judge, so he lifted up his gamble and he whacked it down and said, guilty. And she wept. I'm, I'm, I'm embellishing the story. But she, but she wept. But then something else happened. The judge stood up. He did, the, Brian Chappell saw this in front of his very eyes when he was in the courtroom. She got, he got out his wallet. He handed over the money to, to the uh, bainter for whatever it is. That, uh, and he paid the fine for her in front of her eyes. And while she might have been weeping for a moment because she was destitute... Suddenly she was weeping for joy because she was now fully justified and yet receiving extraordinary, unexpected mercy. How do you respond to something like that? And how would you respond when it's actually much greater we are standing before the judge of the whole earth on the last day knowing our own sin. There's only one response, and that is absolute and utter joy. When you experience forgiveness like that, we've got to rejoice. We've got to be forever grateful. It makes us dance in the street with a smile on our face. See, see when you think about the Reformation 500 years ago, yeah. We're not, we shouldn't, in a way, we shouldn't be celebrating the Reformation because all the Reformation did was they rediscovered what was in the Bible. They rediscovered the joy of it. So, as you think about the, the Reformation, I'm just hoping today that you'll rediscover what they discovered the gems in passages like Romans chapter 3. Now, that's the first point, and the second two are going to be much quicker. But uh, let me say that this justification is not automatic. It's not to all sinners. It's only to believers. So my second point is by faith, or more correctly, through faith. Through faith, people are justified in Christ Jesus and in his sacrifice. Uh, just as on the one hand it is God who does the justifying, it is Jesus Christ who dies. It's the crucifixion. That is the process. Faith in God's provision of Christ crucified is, is what, we've, what we're talking about here. And it's funny that if you, again, read through the passage, there are four times in just five verses where it highlights faith. 22 verse 8, 
first half of 22. God's action to save sinners comes through faith in Jesus Christ. 22b, this is applied to everyone who believes, that is everyone who has faith, without distinction, doesn't matter if you're Jew or a Gentile. Verse 25, God, uh, sorry, sin is propitiated only through faith in Jesus Christ and God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 26, four times in these few verses. I reckon sometimes we get really confused about uh, faith. <clears throat> we get confused because sometimes we end up having faith in our faith. Um, we possess faith because, you know, I, I believe and so... I start trusting in the fact that I've got faith. And we argue, well, I need faith, and if I don't have faith, I'm not saved. So what I trust in is my faith, and my faith ends up becoming a work that I trust in, so I end up saving myself because I'm I'm the one who's got faith. I don't mean to be rude, but that is a stupid mistake. I can't, I, I, I'm a blunt kind of person. Just ask Jesse how I gave him feedback on, on his first sermon. I'm pretty blunt, right? But that is a stupid mistake. What justifies me is the object of my faith, the thing or person that I've got my faith in. And here it is Jesus Christ. It is him who died on the cross. Ask yourself, what have I got my faith in? And be really clear on that. What have I got my faith in? Is it myself, me, Dave Martin, whoopee-doo, or is it Jesus Christ? There is a big difference. Compare Dave Martin to Jesus Christ. You know, uh, Jesus Christ is the eternal son of the living God. He has shared glory with the Father for all eternity. He shed all that glory 2,000 years ago, came down to earth and lived and sort of reduced himself to a human body for 33 years. He still was God, didn't reduce himself that much, but, but he was restricted to a human body. And then after 33 years, he also shed his blood. He shed his glory to come down and then he shed his blood when he was down here. Shed his blood as a sacrifice for sin. That's who we're trusting in. Don't be tempted to trust in yourself for goodness sake. We are relying, when we talk about faith, we are relying on the sovereign Lord of the universe. Think of all the other images in the Bible. The Christ the solid rock, we sing about that. We're talking about the gracious servant who laid down his life. If you trust in someone or something... Make sure that thing that you're trusting in or person you're trusting in is trustworthy. I have some university students who who want to be rich and famous and they're going to trust in their fame and then it'll disappear. I've got some other people who, who want to trust in their possessions as if somehow their possessions, the fact that they've got a big fat bank account and a big nice, nice big house is going to give them security and is going to help them on the last day when they stand before God. What a stupid thing to trust in. Some people trust in their jobs, their, their employer. It gives them all this sense of security and sense of self-importance. I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a plumber. My son's a plumber. My last one. And, and we're trusting in ourselves, but those things are so uncertain to trust in. They're so insecure. 
What a joy and relief to be able to be to, to be able to trust in Jesus Christ. We've got to rely on God for our justification and in the end for, for our glorification. We've got to trust in God for the entirety of our salvation, all the step of the way. The foundation of our confidence is in God and his son crucified. So if we've got faith in God... There's a flip side to this, and this is my third point. And the flip side is that we mustn't have faith in our works. I've already touched on this a little bit. But um, remember, we're talking about justification, so being right with God, and uh, right with God not by the good works that we might do or the works of law or obedience, not the works done by us. We're not going to trust in them. Um, but you know what? Humanity is in constant temptation to justify ourselves. We, we do. We want to trust ourselves. Maybe it's a pride thing. I don't know. Um, maybe it's that, that we just can't cope with the idea of, of contributing nothing to our eternal salvation. We want to contribute something. We kind of hate the idea that we can't contribute something. We want to stand proud and say, you know, I did it, or I did a little bit anyway, even if it was only the faith bit. Look at me, I've done something. And you know the problem is? The problem is that we dislike being a beggar. We hate the idea of begging because we want to contribute something. A beggar can't contribute anything. Generally speaking, middle-class Westerners like you and me, are hopeless beggars. We're we're no good at it. There's another group of people in the Bible that were hopeless beggars too. Do you know who they were? They were the Pharisees, actually. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Two people going to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee. He's the super saint. Everyone thought he was, you know, the super Christian guy before Christians came in. But what he did was he relied on himself. And so he stands up really confidently in the temple and he says, oh, thank you that I'm, that I'm not like this or like this or like this or like this. And, and thank you too that I'm like this and like this. Like, oh, what am, I fast twice a week and I, I um, give a tenth of all I get. See, he was relying on his performance, what he did. The tax collector comes along and he can't even stand up. He stands way back and he beats his breast and he doesn't even look up because he's too ashamed. And, and all he says is, he says, God, most of the translations go, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I checked out the original and it's actually, God, be propitious to me a sinner the same word as in Romans chapter 3 in other words God turn your wrath away from me a sinner acknowledging that he's uh, a sinner and wanting to be to, to have God's mercy and Jesus tells the conclusion of that story it is that man who went home justified God's verdict on him was the beggar 
was the one who went home justified, completely unexpected. And, and he went home relieved and he went home rejoicing. And that is a real warning for us to, to resist the temptation of the Pharisees depending on our works. The flip side, as I said, is depending on Christ, relying on him, relying on his work on our behalf. Um, I find that the longer I've been a Christian, and I've been a Christian now, uh, I'm not going to tell you how long, I don't know, 40 years? Um, the longer I've been a Christian, the greater I have a temptation to say and to think that God owes me. God owes me for 40 years of Christian service. God owes me for 25 years of full-time ministry service. You know, I've done so much for God. God owes me. What a stupid thought. You know, the Pharisees were, were the religious leaders of the day. They did much good work. They dedicated their, their lives to, to trying to obey the law. But they were relying on that. And by relying on that, they were not depending on Jesus. And so they missed out. I mean, what is the point of, of Jesus dying if, if we can trust our works? Galatians 2 says, If righteousness is obtainable through works, Christ died for nothing. Why would God send his one and only son if we could actually rely on our works? It makes nonsense of the cross. I wonder, do you, do you ever hear yourself boasting? You might boast on Facebook of how good your kids are or how good your husband is or your wife or how good you are yourself or you might boast at family gatherings how good you are. Sometimes our comments kind of display an underlying um, uh, understanding that, you know, oh, I'm having such a blessed life. Oh, I'm so good. God is blessing me. Um, but God is blessing me because I am good. When I was working as an accountant uh, in Sydney years ago, I could remember going, catching the bus, I'd walk down to the bus and I'd think to myself, I'm going to have a good day today because I've had a quiet time. Or I'd rush to the bus and think, oh, I'm not going to have a good day today because I didn't get time for my quiet time. Funny thing was, I'd come home in the afternoon and I'd think, oh, I had a good day today. Why is that? Well, actually, I didn't have a quiet time this morning, but still, I still had a good day. Or sometimes I'd come down home and I'd have a lousy day. And think, Why did I have a lousy day? Because I had a quiet time this morning. I, was supposed, I, th I thought, you know, God would bless me if I had a quiet time. Got nothing to do with it. You have a quiet, you read God's word, pray to God because that's a wonderful thing to do and it reminds you of all the goodness of God. And thank, thank the Lord that he's a gracious God who wants to be good to us despite whether or not we are good, whether or not we do good works. We've got to resist that works-based thinking. God operates on grace, grace alone. It's freely by grace. Um, he took the initiative to, to send his son to us when we had fallen a long way short. I'm so thankful that God doesn't operate on works. I would not be game to plant a church out in Officer if God was only going to um, bless that church plant based on my good works. There is no way in the world I would do it. 
Oh, the joy. Oh, the joy of being justified through faith apart from our works. Well, I've got to wrap up. Uh, when uh, we focus on the, on the treasure hidden in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, we see the jewel of the gospel, the precious gospel, justified through faith, not by works. And that should cause us to rejoice greatly in his great plan of sending Jesus. We've been saved from sin. We've escaped his wrath. We're now justified. It's glorious. Glorious news. But as we rejoice in this Reformation rediscover, we've got to remember the foundation of the rejoicing. It's God revealing the gospel of Christ crucified. So we've got to keep relying on Jesus, looking to him, returning to him all the time, standing on him and his promises. And while we do that, we've got to keep resisting that urge to depend on ourselves. Transport yourself uh, to the last day on God's judgment day when you're standing before God. What are you going to trust in? Don't trust in yourself. You'd, you'd be absolutely nuts to trust in yourself, trust in, in Christ and his work. Um, it is much more sensible to trust in what Jesus did rather than what you do. You trust in yourself, you'll be condemned, I guarantee it. Remember the tax collector? God, propitiate my sin, he said. God can and do that. He can do that through his, the death of his son. And, and I want you to feel, as, as you do trust in Jesus, I want you to feel the joy, the joy of standing before God fully forgiven. If you want to relive the Reformation today, rediscover the joy of justification through faith not works. Let's pray. Oh, our loving God, we come before you so thankful for the death of your son on our behalf. We thank you for your wonderful declaration that we can be justified simply through faith and not by works. Thank you that we do not have to and cannot depend on our works Thank you that you have provided an adequate, a perfect sacrifice. Thank you for your gracious declaration that we can be justified through trusting in Jesus. Father God, help us to resist the temptation, the sinful temptation of pride to trust in what we do. Remind us, Father God, of the Pharisee and the tax collector the super sinner who goes home justified because he's trusting and begging for mercy. Help us, Father God, to be better beggars, to beg for mercy because you are a merciful God. And thank you, Father God, for your mercy. Help us, Father God, to rediscover the joy, the sheer joy of being justified through faith, not by works. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.